Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast. This is road trip number 42. Mr. Badgley, how are things in Toronto? Things are fine. Things are very fine. They're, it's warmed up a wee bit today. It's above zero, so good. How about uh, in your neck of the woods? Well, things are great as well. It is a absolutely gorgeous day out there, so I'll take it. It's one degree, sunny, my favorite kind of weather, actually. <laughs> it could be... Uh, you know, a smidge warmer, maybe two. Oh, yeah. that's Well, you know what? I love a cold winter day, so... I do, too. I do, too. Now, something struck me the other day when we were chatting about this. We are 42 road trips in, and we've never talked about The Who. Which is weird, because I don't know what you... I, I went through a Who phase, the likes of which... I love The Who, but... Oh, me too. One of those bands, we've just never mentioned them, have we? No. So why don't we start our road trip off with that? We'll go to February 7th, 1969, and talk about a classic track that was recorded so shall we hit the road Uh, as long as you got uh, the proper tires on i'm good yeah oh we're good to go then it's a new year and it's a brand new wayback music machine cd player check gps double check roll bar they're on the way i'm tony stewart i'm aaron badgley and we're getting ready for another rock and roll road trip Are you ready, my friend? I'm always ready. Well, in that case, buckle up, because it's road trip time. One of my favorite things that we do, Tony, is when we're going on our road trips, we jump across the ocean. I love that. I do, too, and so much of rock history is centered in the UK, so any chance we get to go over is uh, fine, just fine with me. Maybe we should get a condo there. Yeah, we should, eh? A little... uh... (laughs) little place so that we're you know not using so much gas and everything except real estate in london is pretty crazy so i don't think that's in the cards especially with the money we're making off this show (laughs) or or lack thereof exactly (laughs) all right let's go to london february 7th 1969 So here we are at Morgan Studios in London, England, and this is one of the Who's all-time classic tracks that was recorded this day. Of course, I'm talking about Pinball Wizard, which comes from their rock opera, Tommy. And uh, what, a, what a fantastic song, eh? Oh, it's a classic. I just Before we talk about the Who, I just want to say that Morgan Studios was actually owned by a guy named Barry Morgan, who was the drummer for a band called Blue Mink. Oh. They never made it over here, but they were massive, massive in the UK. Just a little bit of trivia there for you. Well, you know what? There's number one on our list of things you didn't know, <laughs> right? So we started that last week. <laughs> but yes, Pinball Wizard is a... Is, is, is a is one of those iconic classic tracks that, uh, you know, has just um, stood the test of time, don't you think? Well, absolutely. And for those who don't know, uh, Tommy was a rock opera, mostly written by Pete Townsend, but um, tells a story of a deaf, dumb, and blind kid who became a pinball wizard and uh, absolutely groundbreaking rock and roll album. It wasn't the first rock opera, but certainly the best known and um, came out in 1969 this single hit number four didn't it i think that's where it peaked wasn't it in in the uk in the uk yeah yeah Yeah. not quite as popular in the u.s it hit number 19 but 
You know, El- Pete Townsend was big into spirituality at the time in 1969, and he was following the teachings of someone called Meher Baba, and I, you know, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but <laughs> it's much the same as the spiritual journey, right, that George Harrison was going on and the rest of the Beatles. And um, so Townsend was attempting to put Baba's teachings into music, and he came up with this idea for this rock opera, but even though it's a rock opera, when you listen to the album, each song actually is designed to stand on its own. And it is a fantastic, fantastic album. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and it was their first, they did two rock opera. Well, they actually did three. Yeah. But the, but the, the second one, which was called Lifehouse, wasn't really ever released kind of, it was years later, but not in its final form. And then they did Quadrophenia, but I love Tommy. Oh, me too. And I love the film, uh, the 1975 film, and especially the, you know, the two notable appearances for me in the film are Elton John in the pinball wizard scene. Yeah. And then uh, Tina Turner as the acid queen. Boy. Although Anne Margaret being covered in brown beans is kind of cool, too. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's a cool part as well. Jack, <laughs> Jack Nicholson's in that film as well. Who can't uh, sing. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Clapton is in there. I mean, it's a who's who, right? Oh, get it? Who's who? <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> the accidental pun. Have you seen Have you seen the play, Tommy? The, I, the Broadway I, play? I have not seen the Broadway play. I've just seen the movie. Oh, the play's good, too. It's not in Toronto. They, they brought the cast into Toronto. I don't know if it was the, the New York cast or not, but they did a production in Toronto. It was quite good. It was it's, The ending's different from the movie and the album, but it was still good. I quite enjoyed it. Now, here is going to be number two on things that people didn't know before they listened to the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so Pete Townsend actually wanted Stevie Wonder to play Tommy in the film, but uh, it ended up, Roger Daltrey ended up doing it. Daltrey did a great job, though, actually. Very convincing, I thought. He did great. Daltrey, uh, after after he did, so this was directed by, the film was directed by a guy named Ken Russell. And the next film that Ken Russell did was a film called Listomania which was about Franz Liszt. And Daltrey played Franz Liszt, right? But what's notable about that film is, well, first of all, it was bizarre. And if you could find a plot, please call me and explain it. But it was Ringo Starr plays the Pope. Oh, and, my um, goodness. <laughs> and Ringo, every time you see the Pope, Ringo's got these sunglasses on, he's smoking a cigarette, and he's like, I don't know, Liszt. <laughs> it's just like, what the <laughs> Anyways, back to Tommy. Back to Tommy. Um, yeah, no, Stevie Wonder to play Tommy. That'd be. I wish they had done that. That would have been cool. That would have been very, very cool. But it didn't happen. I'm not sure the reason it didn't happen, but still a very cool fact. Now you know, I was. Uh, I love the Who as well, and um, I was listening to the Who sellout album, and oh my god, what a what a fantastic. That's a hoot. I love that album. It is. Love that album. And you know what? I think that is pretty much the biggest source material for Spinal Tap, I'm sure. Oh, I agree. A lot of the Who's career could be source, exactly. <laughs> source material. For, there's been some some little slip-ups here and there, right? Oh, for sure. But, um, you know, the Who sellout was a concept album. I mean, the Who have always done concept albums. Yep. Well, not always, but that was a, a great concept album, which kind of paved its way to Tommy being a rock opera. Oh, absolutely. And... Um, you know, that was the thing about The Who, right? They wanted to be more, right? Pretty much right off the bat. They wanted to be more than the three-chord rock song, a rock band, right? And it was always 
in Pete Townsend's nature to take them in different directions. And uh, what a direction that album was, uh, The Who Sell Out. I, I love it. Like I, I oh, asked you there to put that track, Heinz Baked it's Beans. On, it's, on, it's on the playlist. <laughs> it's on there. It's, it's on. I put it on. Um, I also put on the playlist the B-side to Pinball Wizard, which was a non-LP cut called Dogs Part 2, which you're either going to love I, I think I've, I've heard of this track, so it's, it's. I don't know if there's a part one, and I guess I'm hoping there isn't. But um, it's, it's an interesting song. It's 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 um, Tony. But I just want to say that you mentioned earlier on that it's not the first rock opera, and I think many people do think that Tommy is the very first rock opera, and the first one was a British band called The Pretty Things, and the album was called SF Sorrow, released in December of '68. And it was a story about a guy named Sebastian F. Soro from his birth through love, war, tragedy, madness, and, you know, where I'm at now, disillusionment with old age. <laughs> 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 just kidding, folks, just kidding. But but it never did well. It didn't. It wasn't a big album. And I'm not saying that Tommy copied that because it didn't. I think Townsend was working on Tommy while that album came out. Like, I just think, I just want, but just to be clear to everybody, you know. Well, and guess what, Aaron? That's... Thing number three that people didn't know before, so we should keep count of this today. So we should have a bell. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll look for a bell sound effect maybe for next episode. But did you ever see the Who live? I've never seen the Who live. I would love to. Have you? Uh, five times. Oh, you lucky so and so! Wow, really? I saw I saw one concert. They're opening. They, it was it was Nash the Slash, Jay Giles, Hart, and the Who. Oh my gosh. What a lineup. It was a good lineup, yeah. Now, all those shows yeah. in Toronto, or were they? No, they were all in Toronto. Um, but I was at the infamous Who show in Toronto. And my, my, actually, my, I wasn't dating my wife at the time, but we just happened to be at the same show. Joe Jackson opened for The Who. He was wearing a white tuxedo. And during stepping out, someone in the audience threw a hot dog. It lands on him, just makes a mess of his way. And he just goes, okay, F you, Toronto. <laughs> And walked off the stage. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love Joe Jackson too, by the way. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little no. surprised that uh, that hot dog incident didn't make its way into Spinal Tap in some form or other. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the sequel. Maybe the sequel. Now, 1969 here, uh, February. What was on the charts? What did you pick first of all for charts? I went with the U.S. top five albums. Okay. And. Um, because it's interesting, and I, I'm going to be controversial. Number five is called The Graduate. Now, it says it was by Simon and Garfunkel, but it really wasn't, because Dave Grusin does a lot of music on that album, and it's a soundtrack, so I put it as a soundtrack. Okay. Soundtrack. Uh, number four is an album that I love, called Diana Ross and the Supremes with The Temptations. Diana Ross and the Supremes join The Temptations. Great album. Imagine if they were, you know, I'd love to have had the chance to see them live together. Oh, my goodness, that would be fantastic. That would be a hell of a super band, wouldn't it? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Number three is an album that peaked at number two, uh, The Beatles, the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. Number two is an album that peaked at number one for a very long time called The Beatles, which is also known as The White Album, although I typed up The Wit Album. Uh <laughs> 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 and it had been number one up to the up to this week because it was knocked off number one by a group called the Seekers and their best stuff. Oh wow, there you go. 
Well, that's a great chart. Hey there, Georgia girl. Yeah, yeah. But um, our next part of the journey, we're going back fairly far this time, and we're going back to 1942. And this is actually an important one, too, for the whole idea of charts and records and everything. We're going to February 10th, 1942. So let's jump and see what this story's all about. So, Tony, we're going to go to Washington, D.C. for something very important. Um, it's for Glenn Miller and his orchestra, and it's to recognize a record he had put out called Chattanooga Choo Choo. What makes this so special, Tony? Well, this is technically, I guess, classified as the first gold record. And uh, up until that time, they had never really had any such award. Now, it was just a all they did in this case was RCA took a master copy of the disc and they just sprayed it with gold lacquer, right? And it was more of a publicity stunt to recognize the fact that uh, Chattanooga Choo Choo, uh, Glenn Miller's classic, had sold more than a million copies. And that became the standard, right, for a gold record. It was a million copies in the United States. And how long was it? It was a few years later, right, before it actually became an official thing, wasn't it? Well, 1958 was uh, it was officially launched by the um, RIAA, which is the you know which is the Recording Industry Association of America, and it's still RIAA is still with us today. And if you want to do if you want to kill some time, go to their website and you can Google any artist, and you get all the record sales. You get the gold records, the platinum records, silver records. You can get lost in there for hours. Trust me, but um, it's a cool website. But yeah, so it was 1958, but this is the first one where they kind of went, man, this is big. This is 1.2 million copies of this record sold, right? And now, you know what, when they, the first recipient after it became official in 1958, I'm going to, you know, I feel very relaxed as I introduce who it was. Well, it's that sweater. You just look so warm. <laughs> so uh, it was your favorite your favorite your dad's favorite yeah, right? My, my granddad's favorite yeah it was uh, mr perry como was the first recipient of the official gold record but the idea came from 1942 and what was the song with perry como it was uh, catch a falling star and put it in your pocket of your cardigan um yeah <laughs> <laughs> hey hey have i did i ever tell you my roy rogers chattanooga choo choo joke uh, I don't think you have. So yeah, let's ha- let's have it. Do you have a second for me to do it? Oh, we got lots of time on the show, right? Okay. So, yeah, so here we Roy go. Rogers and Dale Evans, of course, his wife. They go out to the uh, country. They have a tent. Triggers there. Roy bought these brand new shoes. He puts them outside the tent for the night. They wake up in the morning and they're just torn to shreds by what looks to be a mountain cat. So Roy's understandably upset because these are brand new shoes. So he gets on trigger. He goes hunting and he finds the cat and kills it. He comes riding back. The cat's over the horse. And Dale bursts out of the tent and says, pardon me, Roy, is that the cat who chewed your new shoes? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Cue the trombone sound here. (laughs) (laughs) Great joke. Great joke. I think you have to be alive in 1943 to appreciate it. Well, that's right. Chattanooga Choo Choo is a great song, too, actually. It is one one of Glenn Miller's finest. So, Um, yeah. Now, you know, I think people might like to know, because it's an interesting process when you're calculating gold records, especially uh, in the the record era, right? The disc era. 
Um, how did they come up with the million copies? I don't know where the, I don't know where that number. Do you know where the, the the magic number of a million came from? I think it was just a recognition, like the you know a gold standard, right? Like if yeah. you could sell a million copies, but over time it's changed because, like you know, a million copies in the '60s wasn't the same as a million copies in 1942. So, like for example, now a gold record in the U.S. is actually 500,000 copies, and a million copies gets you. A, a platinum album and if you sell 10 million records you get what's called a diamond it's a diamond album. there's only a handful of diamond albums you know the white album eagles greatest hits um, thriller yeah um but so but well, what's interesting about the whole thing about the um cert- certification is it's not automatic tony in other words the record label has to request to say, listen, we this record has sold a million copies. Can you make it a gold record? And then there's an audit. An audit's conducted to see that the album shipped amount of copies, nothing was returned. And they always use their artist royalty statement, which is really interesting because I'll give you an example. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Bee Gees, terrible album, shipped three million copies in the US when it came out. Two and a half million were shipped back. So they wouldn't certify it as platinum. They certified it as gold because they only sold 500,000 copies. Although the record company said, no, 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 well, we shipped 3 million. Yeah, but two and a half came back. Right? Yeah, well, that's an interesting process. I've always, I was interested in finding out how that works because if it was just units shipped, right, that's a completely different story. Now, I don't know how it works now with streaming because, and I'm going to say, Tony, I don't, I, to, to me, just because someone streams a song for 45 seconds isn't the same as actually you getting on your coat, getting in your truck, driving downtown, picking up an album or a CD and driving back. It's not well, the same that's thing. right. That's right. I don't think it's the same either. Now, 1942, though, must have been some interesting charts, right? I love those old charts. And, and actually, uh, I'm going to tell you that all but one I have in my collection. So there you go. And you'll know that what I don't because you're going to go, I've never heard that song. <laughs> Tommy Dorsey, number five with This Love of Mine. Uh, fantastic song featuring Frank Sinatra on vocals, by the way. Uh, Woody, Her- Do you know, I love Woody Herman. Oh, Do you me like too. Him? I love Woody Herman, yep. Yeah, Blues in the Night. I love that song. Just love it. Number three, Alvino Ray with I Said No. <laughs> and I just said I've never heard of that song, so yep. <laughs> I think we should do a mashup of that and Baby It's Cold Outside. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Number two is, you know, this song had been on the charts for so long, was Ch- Chattanooga Choo Choo, number two by Glenn Miller. And number one was his then most current song called A String of Pearls, Glenn Miller. So he's at one and two. Interesting fact. Interesting fact. This is another did you know moment that Chattanooga Choo Choo wasn't the original A-side. Oh, what was? I know why, and so do you. And the radio started flipping the record over, but the A-side was not initially Chattanooga Choo Choo. Oh, isn't that interesting? I wonder if the title or something had something to do with it being a B-side, you know? I don't know. Um, But it's now regarded as the classic, and uh, I I love the song, as you say, and uh, I can still listen to it. And it's on the playlist, folks, so enjoy it. Enjoy it. Now we're going to go, uh, our next trip is back across the pond, actually. So you know what? That condo was actually not a bad idea because we're, we're flipping all over the place. But we're going to go February the 13th, 1970, 
and we're going to take a look at what is probably the first heavy metal album. So let's jump and uh, take a look at this story. All right, here we are in Birmingham, England, and this is another city we haven't visited very often, but some incredible uh, musical talent has come out of this city. But we're talking about one group in particular. Uh, we're talking about Black Sabbath because... Sharon! <laughs> of course, Ozzy managed to sneak into this episode, but uh, <laughs> this is really important because we're talking about Friday the 13th, which is absolutely fitting. Um, Black Sabbath is releasing their debut self-titled album on Vertigo Records, and it peaks you know, only at number eight on the charts, so it does quite well. But this is, it, it's recognized by just about everybody as the first mainstream album to be credited as a heavy metal album. And so that in itself is really important. You know, anytime that you see kind of the birth of a new genre, it's, it's very, very cool. And uh, who was in the original lineup besides Ozzy? Well, that would be Tony Iommi, who played guitar. Uh, Bill Ward on drums. Uh, I love the, I love this man's name. Oh, me Geezer too. Butler. That's the best. I the best. And this is a Spinal Tap name. Geezer Butler on bass, and of course Ozzy on vocals. And I have a trivia for you. Okay. The front cover. Do you know who's on the front cover of that album? I'm trying to picture the album cover in my head. I'm not sure who was it. It's Ozzy's first wife. Oh, very so, cool. So, and she's kind of looks like a a, um, a witch. And he later joked. How, how apropos, um, because I guess she took him to the cleaners. But um, that's his first wife is on the front cover of the first Black Sabbath album. Now, here's, you know, I think we're up to things you didn't know, four or five here. Okay. Five. Five. There's got to be five. Yep. So Tommy Iommi, okay, guitarist for Black Sabbath. Did you know he took a little sabbatical? Before they became Black Sabbath, they were called um, Earth. And he took a little sabbatical and guess which group he went to join for a very little brief stay i know who it is i've seen footage of it too yeah yeah he joined jethro tull very briefly so i bet you didn't know that folks but uh iomi went over to jethro tull he had a short-lived little residency with them and ended up coming back now you mentioned jethro tull tony and i'm going to digress for a minute because something very important happened this past week oh yeah that's really Um, cool you mentioned that to me yeah isn't it cool? So Jethro Tull have a new album out called The Zealot Gene. I was able to speak to Ian Anderson of the band, and I wrote an article for Spill. But this new album is their first top 10 album in the UK since 1972. Their last number, the last top 10 album was Thick as a Brick. Great album. Their albums kind of hovered around 11, 12 on the charts, but this album, the new one, Zealot Gene, went in at number eight. Um... But in terms of vinyl sales, it came in at number seven, and it's number three or four in Germany. Like it's it's a huge album for them. Oh, that's amazing! What that's that's well deserved, actually. Oh, and it's their first album in twenty years. So let's hear it for Jethro Tull. I'm so happy for them. They're because I love them. You know that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love them too, and uh, that's that's very very well deserved. This is why we're friends, Tony. <laughs> So Black Sabbath, a lot of people wonder, you know, the it's a it's a perfect name for a band for the first metal album. And they got that name uh, from a Boris Karloff film. 
They saw the poster. They thought that sounded kind of cool. And uh, one thing they noticed, right, is the film Black Sabbath uh, with Boris Karloff in it actually sold a lot of tickets. And they were noticing the lineups. And, and, and the thought process was, well, you know, if a, a film called Black Sabbath can sell a lot of tickets like this, a band like Black Sabbath could really take off. And Ozzy hated the name Earth anyway with uh, in that band. So I think he was very, very happy to see that change happen. Well, Earth is a very, um, it would have been very dated very quickly. Black Sabbath has never dated as a name. It's a great, I mean, the film, I've, I'm a huge Boris Karloff fan. I don't know if that surprises anyone. but yeah, I, um, I knew you were. That's why I put it in the notes. Yeah. Oh, I, I loved what you did. I was just like so happy because <laughs> then I could go, hey, Boris Karloff, you know where he was from? Liverpool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Another four guys from Liverpool that I like too. Um, the Black Sabbath film is very underrated. It's very good. It's a B movie, no question, but it's a good movie. And you know, I, I was never a big metal guy uh, growing up, but I'm finding myself lately, and I think it's because we do this show together and we do talk about heavy metal fairly often. I'm finding myself now drawn to the back catalogs of groups like uh, Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath and Nazareth. And I, I don't know, it's just really, really interesting, you know? It's weird you said Nazareth. I was I, This weekend, I was listening to Nazareth. Yeah. That's really weird you said that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm with you, Tony. I never really liked Black Sabbath at the time, but I'm, I was just digging um, the, the song Iron Man. Like, it's just like, oh, this is cool. This is actually quite good. I'm, I'm, oh, for sure. So I don't know. Maybe there's our second childhood, Tony. Well, that's right. That's right. We're reliving <laughs> our teenage years here, right? <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, it, you know, I think that's part of the journey with doing a show like this. I always view it as a student, right? Every every time we do an episode, it's, you know, we both learn something new, and, and it's uh, fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Like, I didn't know, I had no idea they got their name from that film. I was So it's kind of cool to see that, you know? Yeah, that's such a great piece of trivia. Now, I'm curious, though, uh, here we are. This is 1970, the charts. Uh, I'm sure I know some of the names that are going to be on this chart, but... Uh, what did you pick for the charts? Well, I went with the Canadian top five. I had so much fun doing the other the other week or two weeks ago. I did the Canadian top five. I thought we'd do it again. And um, I'm going to tell you that um, I have all but one album in this top five. And I wonder if you can, you'll know when we get to it. But oh, number I, five I, is. I can guess. I, yeah, I'm just looking at the yeah. chart here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I know you know. I do. Know, uh, yeah. Number five is an album by a group called The Band, called The Band, and um, I've made no secret that I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of The Band. Number four, probably my favorite Rolling Stones album, and the only one I own, called Let It Bleed. Oh yeah, with I'm, these... I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. Oh, Gimme Shelter. Yeah. Yeah, great song. See, Tony. <laughs> We're, we're miles apart and we're still number three Creedence Clearwater Revival with Willie and the Poor Boys classic yes. classic number two not, not a fan Led Zeppelin and Led Zeppelin 2 I know I'm going to get mail but I'm not a fan of Led Zeppelin you know what I'm not really either and, and it's more for me um, okay I'm just going to come out and say it I felt like I felt like I felt like rock and roll lost its way when it became pretentious like there's no question there's no question that a level of musicianship in led zeppelin is incredible but it just 
that's not what rock and roll was about when it first emerged as a as an art form right and so yeah. uh, it's just some it's an, another animal altogether i'm not a, a fan either just because of the whole pretentiousness and all and i'm sure i'll get uh, crapped on over that as well but there it is that's how i feel as well but you know and we've talked about this you and i both talked about this i like robert plant with with alison krauss because oh. it's not pretentious yeah absolutely yeah they're they're wonderful together it's just fantastic. So I'm, I agree with what you're saying. I'm not, and I grew up in a family. My brothers, two of my older brothers, loved Zeppelin. So, you know, number one is an album I don't know if you're familiar with. I've remotely heard of it. It's called Abbey Road by the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Canada. We went to number one. Yes. And for you, Tony, number 15, second week on the charts here in Canada, two weeks on the charts, it was already number 15, was Elvis Presley. From Memphis to Vegas, from Vegas to Memphis. Oh, very live cool. double album. It's a great live album, by the way. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? That live album that you bought me for uh, Christmas is fantastic. The, the two shows yeah. from Madison Square Garden. Oh, he's great live. I just, I, you know, Tony and I are both diehard Elvis fans. So, so I'm going to tell you, I was listening to today, actually, listening to one of Elvis's last shows uh, that he ever did before he died. I mean, it was because he died uh, August the 16th. And, um, 77 this show was from june 77 and you know the last thing to go was his voice right yeah i mean i I know the concert you're talking about yeah yeah it's still incredible his voice and like his voice got better as he aged it was unbelievable well i you know the 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 nashville sessions from the late 60s and then one of my favorite Elvis songs, and people may laugh when I say this, is, is Burning Love. I love that song. Oh, that's a great song. His voice in that. But but listen to the stuff he was doing in the 70s, even Moody Blue. Fantastic. His well, voice was great. Well, that's right. And now we're going to do a segue here, because I know how much you like segues when the opportunity presents itself. <laughs> we're going to segue from Elvis to our From Memphis to Merseyside moment. And we've got one of the all-time iconic moments for the fab four i mean this is this is the big one and and there's an elvis connection tony oh absolutely so this is the big one folks we'll be right back (laughs) uh, with our from memphis to merseyside moment four words that changed the world ladies and gentlemen the Beatles and cue the rabid screaming by the female fans and yes this is February 9th 1964 at CBS Studios in New York City the appearance by the Beatles that just changed everything and uh, what a show that must have been what a show you know you know Bob Dylan writes about it on his most recent album he writes about you know come downstairs quick the Beatles are on Ed Sullivan you know so well, Billy Joel talked about it. He said that was the appearance that, the, you know, the the performance that made him decide, I'm doing this. This is my career. Well, and you were listening to the station. I, Tony and I listened to a station from Ireland, from Dundalk, and there's these three old guys talking this afternoon, and that's what their show was called, like three old guys talking. And they talked about how the world was never the same after the Beatles played. And he goes, we're in Ireland, and we knew about it. So... Yeah, it was it 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 was it wasn't a, a show. It was a, an explosion, you know. No, absolutely, and it was the most watched live television program, right? Seventy three million viewers, and that's pre cable, so that's important to to note. That is an unbelievable statistic. Did you know 
that the hour and a half, or the 15 minutes before and 15 minutes after, that that hour and a half, there was not one crime reported in New York City. I heard that, that when they looked at the statistics, right, is that uh, even even the criminals took time out to watch the Beatles. <laughs> well, you know, you want to stay on top of things, right? <laughs> but you know, but it's true, no crimes. And the Elvis connection, of course, well, Elvis had an iconic um performance on the same show uh, years earlier but uh, didn't Sullivan begin the show by telling the audience that Presley and his manager had sent uh, the Beatles a telegram wishing them success in America he, he exactly so I mean you know this was there's, there's the I don't think Elvis or Colonel Tom had any idea yeah the, the, the seismic boom this was going to be but and the Beatles did uh, five songs on the first show. They did three shows on Sullivan on February 9th, and they, they did the 17th and the 23rd. Um, the 23rd was a pre-recorded show. But the, um, All My Loving, Till There Was You, She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and I Saw Her Standing There. Um, of course, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and I Saw Her Standing There, where there was the most recent single in the U.S. And... Um, what was the famous thing, Tony, under John Lennon when they put when they closed they put close ups on each Beatle and they put their name, but John had a special message, right? Oh, what was that? I'm trying to I can't remember. What did he say? Sorry, girls, he's married. Oh, that's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's like John, sorry girls, he's married. <laughs> yeah, a lot of hearts broken that night, eh? <laughs> yeah, a lot of crying. But <laughs> My mom talked about it always. I mean, I grew up, I didn't see it. Obviously, I wasn't born, but my mom talked about oh. the impact of that show was just beyond. Well, that, and my folks talked about it too. You know, it was one of those moments, right? It was a once in a generation moment. Where were you? And uh, the impact that that had, the number of musical careers that were born from that hour and a half of television. The birds. I mean, everyone. I mean, you know, I, I have a good friend who's a musician, and he said there's two kinds of musicians in the world, those influenced by the Beatles and liars. Um, <laughs> what a great quote, and that's true. <laughs> but, you know, hey, Monkey's Connection. What's the Monkey's Connection? Do you know? I don't know. What's the Monkey's Connection? So this is something Davey else. Jones was on the show that week. Oh, was he? Well, singing? Yeah, he was part of the Oliver. They had the Oliver cast from Broadway on. Oh wow! And Davy Jones pre Monkeys was on the show. Oh, that's a that's a very <laughs> cool uh, connection. Yeah. So that's this is the the day that uh, I'll be listening to the Beatles live at uh, Sullivan this, uh, this evening. I'll put it on YouTube and watch it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that that was just a, a game changer for the whole industry. And uh, yeah, what a great Memphis to Merseyside moment. Well, we're coming to the end of our road trip, and uh, you know we're forty two episodes in, and this has been a blast as always i love doing this every week with you 42 and we're not slowing down and my friend i love doing it too so we're not uh we're not putting the um the way back music machine on any kind of bricks right now so no you bet we're we're just getting started so thanks for <laughs> thanks very much folks for uh, letting us into your headphones and uh, we will see you again next week thanks for listening to our road trip the music was by Rick Denis. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, be sure to click the follow or subscribe button in your favorite podcast player. That way you'll be the first to know whenever we release a new episode. How else can people help, Aaron? They can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our website. And if you think we're worth the five stars, please leave us a review. Thanks for hitting the road with us today. 
and we'll see you again soon.